Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. This week, we were honored to bring on a guest that we've hoped to have on for years, Susan Kane. Her work has meant a lot to me personally. In 2012, she released her book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. As an introvert myself, I found that book deeply resonant and empowering. But today, we brought Susan on to talk about her new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, another masterwork that reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list and has been praised by Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle, and Adam Grant. This book touched us deeply with its key truth, that somehow, feelings of deep pain and deep joy are often intimately linked. In Susan's words, bittersweetness is a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. It recognizes that light and dark, birth and death, bitter and sweet, are forever paired. In this conversation with Susan, we talked about how sadness may be the strongest agent available to us for connection to others, how embracing bittersweetness may be the antidote to toxic perfectionism, and how longing is the very essence of faith. Susan's books have been translated into 40 languages and spent over eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. Fast Company Magazine has named Susan one of its most creative people in business. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Her TED Talks on the power of introverts and the hidden power of sad songs and rainy days have been viewed over 40 million times. She is an honors graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School. She lives in the Hudson River Valley with her husband, two sons, and golden doodle, Sophie. You can find out more about Susan and her work at susankane.net. We're really excited to be able to share this conversation with you, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Okay, Susan Kane, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's truly an honor to have you on. And I wondered if you would start by talking about how this book got started. At, at first glance, at least at my first glance, it seemed like a very different follow-up from Quiet. So if you could, if you could start there, that would be awesome. Sure. And I'll just say first, Tim and Aubrey, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It's really our pleasure. Um, So where did this book come from? It came from this experience that I have had over and over again throughout my life. I'm in my 50s now, but I've been having it for decades. Um, I'll give you one such experience. Mm I was uh, in my early 20s. I was in law school. I was in my dorm waiting for some friends to pick me up for class. We were going to go together. And I was listening very loudly (laughs) to, you know, like blasting on my stereos. Um, I I was listening to music. uh, And it was kind of bittersweet, longing music. It was probably Leonard Cohen or someone like that. Mm-hmm. And my friends came to my room and they thought it was hilarious that I was listening to what they called funeral music. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and you know, and they were kind of teasing me about it. And I thought it was funny and I laughed and we went to class. And in some ways that was the end of the story. But another way, I kept thinking about this for the next decades of what is it in our culture that makes it funny to listen to music that's beautiful but sad 
And also, um, what is it about the music itself that when we listen to it, and I, I think we all have our favorite of that genre, you know, whether it's Leonard Cohen or Nina yeah. Simone or Adele or whoever it is for you, you listen to that kind of music and you don't really feel sad. You feel a kind of tidal wave of love and you feel a sense of connection to the musician and to every other human who has ever had the experience that the music is trying to express and to transform into into beauty. And I started to realize that those were some of the most profound experiences of my life and that they started with music, but they didn't end there. That there was that the music was like pointing me in a direction of a deeper truth and a deeper meaning that we don't get to talk about enough in our culture. And 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 I started looking at it and realizing that there there really is what I call this bittersweet tradition that has been with humans across the centuries and across the cultures. And we find it in our religions and wisdom traditions, especially um, this sense of of sorrow and longing as a kind of gateway to transformation. Wow. I, I loved that whole, I loved just the whole premise because it's something that felt so viscerally true to me that I had never totally articulated. And so I could feel this truth really coming alive that I could see everywhere. And, and so it was really exciting. It felt, it felt immediately transformative. And what came to mind for me is our community, because we have, you know, all these people that we meet with, every week who we love and who who love us and what feels familiar to me is that i'm super comfortable celebrating with people and i'm really comfortable being hopeful with people and and doing these positive things together and and feeling solidarity with them in their in their happiness but it's so uncomfortable to bring tears and sorrow to a community if there's not an end in sight and so i i would love to just hear if you've seen this done well in community, because I, I want to do it better. I can, I believe you that this really is connecting, but it, I don't know how to do it in, in a situation where there are lots of us and we don't know what to do with this energy that feels uncomfortable and, and painful, but I, I want it to be connecting. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you use the words when there's no end in sight. I have heard that from so many people. There's no reason we can't go in and out of these experiences. Um, hmm. And and, and I, I think we know it from our regular life, right? That you have some moments of un- unadulterated joy and you have some moments of heart-wrenching grief and then you have everything in between and mm-hmm. that all of it is part of being human. And that's really kind of what I'm talking about is to be open to all of those aspects of human humanity without feeling that we have to get stuck um, or yeah. mandated to stay in in any one of them. You say you say in the book that sadness is the ultimate bonding agent, um, which sort of echoing Aubrey felt intuitively true to me, uh, but on more of a superficial level, it's 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 hard to hear that. Could you explain maybe some of some of the research that you did or experiences that you had that helped you come to that that conclusion? Yeah. And oh my gosh, there's so much to say. So I'm trying to think where to go. Yeah. Um, I might've just been asking you, can you, could you reread the book for us? But. <laughs> um, so, okay. First of all, we've all had that experience, right? Of you're there with your friend during an hour of need, or you're having a problem that's making you sad and you share it with a friend. And there's something about the nature 
a friendship that you could almost define a, a deep friend as being the one who you would share your sorrow with. Um, and, and we see this, like when we look at it from every which way, I mean, uh, to give you the kind of evolutionary take on it. So Darwin is best remembered as being about the idea of survival of the fittest, but he was actually a very different personality from what that phrase evokes. He was a very gentle and melancholic type of soul. And he was very, he he was kind of horrified by the cruelty that he found in nature, but alongside that cruelty and that, you know, survival of the fittest mechanism, um, he also noticed that among humans, but among all mammals, there is this instinctive thing that happens that when one mammal sees another mammal in distress, um, the, the witnessing mammal feels kind of compelled to act to do something about that distress. It's like the, the distress of, of, of another becomes our own. And he actually wrote in his book, The Descent of Man, that that feeling of that like visceral experience of another person's distress, that that's actually the strongest impulse of all in wow. in animal life. Yeah. And nobody knows this about Darwin, but this <laughs> is something that he noted that, that he noted. And it, what, again, it wasn't that he was like Pollyanna and not seeing, you know, the, the darker, more violent side of our nature, but he, he really did see this kind of compassionate instinct and then 150 years later comes along this psychologist, Dacher Keltner um, at, at Berkeley. He's a, a scientist and, and he starts studying this compassionate instinct. And he realizes that we all have a, what's called a vagus nerve, which is the strongest bundle of nerve in our nerves in our bodies. And it, you know, it, this is a very fundamental part of our bodies. It, it regulates our breathing and our digestion it also, when we see somebody who's sad, our vagus nerve becomes activated. Like we want to bond with them and do something about it. And mm-hmm. all of this comes from the human impulse to protect newborn infants who arrive into this world completely vulnerable and in tears. So this is the way mammals and humans have been designed, you know, to be able to show up for each other's tears doesn't mean again that we have to be stuck in that mode all the time and you know the baby stops crying and you have a nice snuggle um but it's all part of the experience yeah i love that whole part about empathy and it made me i think there's somewhere where you say that if you if you think that you're better than someone then you actually feel less empathy and it made me wonder if sometimes it's sort of we we sort of work backwards that like the pride is is really a defense mechanism that protects us from the pain of feeling empathy. And so I love these like concrete ideas that you had for sort of practicing humility and, and, and leaning into compassion. And I think maybe just the idea that you're not going to have to be there forever, that, that is just this constant flow of joy and pain. And, and so you'll be able to move on, but could you just talk about some of those ways that we can actually develop the humility that is really connecting us to the people around us, even yeah. if they're in pain? Sure. I mean, one of those ways I, I was really interested um, when I found in the research that that bowing, um, like the simple act of bowing or lowering our heads, puts so us into that state 
of humility and, and empathy. And I started thinking about, you know, all the different traditions in which bowing is incorporated. You know, you think of all the different Japanese social traditions where people greet each other with, with um, very specific types of bows. Um, you see it in Islam, you see it in, in yoga. Like I, I do a lot of yoga and I think, oh my gosh, like all those times you're constantly lowering your head. Um, and it does feel like a kind of um, uh, acknowledgement of the other when you, that, that simple act of lowering your head. Yeah. And prayer too, right? I, I mean, I just thought, I've never even considered that that is the posture of prayer, like lowering your head. And and I loved that that could be something meaningful, that that could actually be part of the practice of connection, not not just the thoughts or the words during prayer. Yeah. And, and, and it's what's so interesting about it is it actually runs so counter to the way we are taught to present ourselves in everyday life. Like the idea of lowering your head in a business meeting is you never do that. You're supposed to, you know, stand tall with, with your big smile. Um, so there, there's some intuition that's incorporated into prayer um, that recognizes that that, that mechanism of, of standing tall all the time, that it doesn't take us all the way there. You know, it, totally. it, it's yeah. right for certain circumstances and not, but not all the time. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because I think that there's a way sometimes we sort of attach a moral value to being cheerful and optimistic. And I think maybe that we're actually recognizing those attributes as as expressions of faith that, you know, if you believe that God is the great alchemist, then you should be able to face difficult things with a lot of hope and positive energy. And and so I wonder if people could see this idea of embracing longing as as a sort of admission of a spiritual deficiency or like a lack of trust in God. And so I wondered if you could just reframe that for us. Like how, how can longing actually be connecting maybe even to your faith? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's longing is the very essence of faith. It is the essence of it. And you see this in all the different religious traditions. And I'm sorry, I'm not deeply familiar with yours, so I'm not going to speak about <laughs> that, um, but, but I'll give you, so many different examples of it. Um, so, gosh, I mean, like all the dating all the way back to um, it was the fifth century. Gregory the Great talked about this, uh, this feeling of compunctio, which he and he called it the holy tears. And the holy tears are um, what he described as a feeling of bittersweetness because you see the difference between the world that you long for, you know, the the, the divine um, that you long for. And the world in which you find yourself currently, and and so there's something about that recognition of that gap that is said to bring you ever closer to the divine, and and you see this in all the traditions. Like if you think about it, there's the longing for the Garden of Eden. Um, there's mm-hmm. the longing for Zion um, in in the Sufi tradition, which is the mystical side of Islam. Um, there's the the longing for the beloved of the soul, which is the the way Sufis sometimes talk about God, and um, and you know there there's the poet you might have heard of Jalal al Din Rumi. He's a 12th mm-hmm. century Sufi poet who happens to be the best selling poet in the United States. Um, oh. And the essence of his teaching, and and you see this in his poetry over and over and over again, is that the longing you express for God is the return message from God. Um, mm. 
he's got this amazing poem where he's it's called love dogs and he's describing a man who is praying to god and and then a, a, a cynic comes along and observes this and says to him you know why are you bothering to do this did you ever get an answer back and the, and the guy is oh no i i actually never did um and so and he's very disturbed by this and that night he falls asleep into a fitful sleep and he has a dream in which he's visited by Hitter, who is the guide of souls. And Hitter asks him why he stopped praying and the man explains why. And what, what Hitter says to him is, no, that I, I, I literally, I have these, this is now me, Susan talking. Okay. I, I, I have these, this, the following words literally taped up on the lamp next oh to where I am now talking to you because I find this so profound. Um, so this is what Hitter says to this man. He says, this longing you express for the divine, this longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure wow. sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Wow. So wow. it's a, so so longing is the essence of what brings us closer, not not what fails to appreciate God. Yeah, you wow. you talk about too how you noticed a sort of apparent contradiction um, between sort of that that Sufi teaching that you talked about with the longing for the beloved and and Buddhist teachings, and and you admit in the book that you're a casual student at best of of both religions. And, and I would describe it the same way. And Aubrey and I have had this, had this question because there is this sort of core, at least at, you know, to a casual student, it seems that there is a core uh, teaching within Buddha, Buddhism that, that can be very attractive of non-attachment and how a lot of our suffering comes from our attachment to things that we don't need to be attached to. And so you, you talk about how you sort of see these two teachings as, you know, potentially, apparently contradictory. Could you talk about that a little bit and how you sort of came to some kind of resolution there? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so as I say, I kept having this intuition that first came to me through music about this kind of profound longing as being, being something worth following. Um, and, and then I found it echoed in, in these Sufi teachings. Um, and then, yes, as you said, at the same time, I was familiar with and intrigued by the Buddhist idea of of non-attachment and especially of non-attachment from cravings and from longings. And so these seem to me to be completely contradictory. Um, So I actually went to this Sufi retreat led by um, a guy named Llewellyn Von Lee, whose YouTube videos I would totally recommend, you know, (laughs) no matter what a person, a listener's religion or lack thereof, like these videos are so good. So I went to his retreat and um, and I asked him this question and he kind of like lit up as if he'd been waiting for somebody to ask it. Um, and he said, no, 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 these, these are completely different states. And, and now it's again, Susan talking. <laughs> so I'm going to explain <laughs> this as best I can. Like when, when, we, when we talk about the, the value in longing, we're not talking about you know, the longing for a piece of chocolate cake or, um, you know, for a better house or car or something, even though all those are understandable desires. Um, <laughs> that's not it. The, the, the Sufi longing, I think, is more talking about the longing for the divine, 
or in secular terms, you could say the longing for that which is most beautiful and good and true. And there's a sense that longing for that state of perfection and truth and goodness that we can never quite attain in this world, but the the longing for it brings us ever closer. That's beautiful. I love just the idea that that feels like something we can choose to embrace. That's something that's always within our, within our grasp. And, you know, if longing is the problem, then it's hard to push that away. But as long as when you lean into longing, then it's just, it's always right there. And I, I love that idea. I, I think, I think Rumi had something similar that he, um, he said, don't seek for water, be thirsty. And then, and then the other one was nourish me, not with love, but with a desire for love. And yes. both of those just felt so just, just so accessible. That's at your fingertips. And, and, and so I could see how that kind of does dissolve this divide because there's nothing to be attained. Like the, the hoping to attain is the thing that you're searching for. And and so there's a lot of peace there. I think when you, when you just choose to embrace that, to embrace the deficit and how much you like to fill it. So I, I, I just love, I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. There's so much peace there. And, and I, and there's also paradoxically, there's a kind of like feeling of ecstasy there, which is the best way I can explain why that kind of music that I started out with speaks to us so much. It's I, I, There's a feeling you can get sometimes when you lean into the state of like the Garden of Eden is actually in sight, like there it is around the bend um, yeah. that can be very uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. And I, I it made me think about, um, you know, something that we talk a lot about on the podcast is doubt. And that can be such a, an uncomfortable feeling for someone who has always been filled with, with like a, a a certainty about their faith. And so I felt like this was a, this was a really useful new paradigm to consider faith. You know, I think longing could be another way to express doubt. And, and I think it's possible that you could sit through a church service and believe that the point of, of, of being there on a Sunday is to resolve longing and resolve doubt that you can, you could walk away without a shadow shadow of doubt. And you could walk away feeling so um, like that, you know, God so intimately that there's no separation. And, and this just felt like turning the paradigm on its head. And, and it feels like it would be soul feeding to just completely lean into everything that is missing. And, and, and to believe that that could actually be something that connects you to your faith and to your community and not a deficit. Yeah. I, I actually had goosebumps as you were describing all that. I feel like you really hit on a truth in that description. Um, And you know what else you made me think of? I I just saw the other day on Instagram or someplace, um, somebody posted something saying, she said something like, I used to, she'd grown up in an evangelical church. And she said, I used to think I was really a believer because I would, um, I, I would, I would sit in church and feel so moved and so uplifted by the church music. And she said, and then I got older and I went to a concert and realized, no, what I just really liked was live music. It had nothing to do (laughs) with the religion. And I was so struck by that because I feel like I had exactly the opposite experience of that, which is, or the mirror image experience of it, which is think that I grew up feeling an agnostic all my life. And I, in some ways I really still am, but then I started to realize that the experience that I have listening to music is actually the same, I think almost identical experience that people describe when they're connected to God. And 
my, you know, who knows, but my best take is that there is no distinction or difference between the two states. I, I think they're almost they're practically semantic differences. Yeah. One one thing that came up for me was you wrote, I don't have the exact quote here, but you, you wrote that um, Christ mm-hmm. died on the cross, but we focus on the birth and resurrection. And you're not writing this obviously from a Christian perspective necessarily, but you're, you're hitting on something for us as, as Christians that was really, uh, that was really resonant. Um, and I, I think it'd be interesting maybe to talk about death and that, that section of the book a little bit. And actually just to share a funny story with you, when, when our oldest daughter was maybe two, Aubrey, do you want me to yeah, I think about two. <laughs> she was two. Okay. We were walking, we were walking outside just on our front walk and there was a little, uh, a little potato bug or roly poly or whatever you might call them. And she totally just stomped on it. Just like no mercy. <laughs> like and on we purpose. Were, yeah. We were like, we were like horrified and it was, it was this weird, really weird moment. And we're, she, she saw that we were like our reaction she's like, oh no no don't worry he's gonna get resurrected and we're just like oh interesting that's the perspective and like i felt like this book actually brought that up for me because both i mean both as religious people or even as you know as secular people or or just people part of our western culture we do focus we like do have this radical focus on on positivity you even had it you even had an experience where you um interacted with with a lot of people that that are focused on on defeating death, and I, I, I'd love to talk about uh, or get your perspectives on the things that that death itself might be might be offering us, and how we how we could be you know potentially impeding our own spirituality or or spiritual growth by trying to by trying to avoid it. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Well. Yeah, we're we're living in a culture right now that. We're in such a state of death denial on a daily basis. I don't even think we realize how extreme it is compared to the way it used to be. Because it used to be that, you know, people would, they would die at home. Mm. And, uh, And so life and death were just a natural part of everyday life. And we were constantly aware of it. Um, Whereas now, death happens very discreetly off stage in the hospital, and it's only affecting the the immediate people around the dying person. And even for those immediate people, they're they're usually encouraged to get over it in some way. And I use that expression intentionally, like to you know to get over it as quickly as they possibly can. Um, so you know, at best in modern day life, we kind of remind ourselves that, like we, we we think about death metaphorically oh it's winter you know that's a metaphor for it but you know that that's a pretty attenuated way mm. of experiencing it um and and so there's a lot that we lose when we're not constantly reminded the way that we used to be um and one of the things that we lose is an intense sense of the preciousness of life on the one hand. And I would say on the other hand, also the fact that everything is probably going to be okay, no matter what. Um, and, but, uh, but I'll talk about the preciousness of life first. There's this practice that you find in many wisdom traditions. The, um, the Stoics called it memento mori, and that means to remember death. And, and it was the Stoic practice 
in which people were encouraged to really like actively constantly be remembering that they might die at any moment. And Tibetan monks practice this, many traditions do. Um, and like for the Stoics, it was so extreme that it, they, it, it, they would have a military commander who had just been successful on the battle and he would be like, you know, walking in full regalia through the amphitheater with everybody, you know, throwing flowers on him. And he would have people walking past him as this was going on, as this moment of glory was going on. He, he would be followed by <clears throat> loyal courtiers who would be saying, remember, you're going to die. Remember, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's kind of hilarious in a way, but, <laughs> but that's what they did. So I, I started trying this practice myself. And it really was so transformative. Um, like my, when my kids were little, we had this routine, you know, like a, a, a bedtime ritual. And it was definitely one of the best parts of the day. You know, it was like super cozy and intimate. Um, and I was really busy <laughs> during that time of life, um, just like professionally busy. And I found myself during those bedtime routines sometimes having trouble not checking my cell phone for incoming emails and stuff. Um, but then, even though I really didn't want to be doing that, I did. And then I started doing this memento mori practice. And I would say to myself, you know, you may not be here tomorrow or, or your beloved son may not be here tomorrow. We don't know. Wow. And that kind of changed everything. <laughs> like I just put the phone down instantly and I had no desire to pick it up again. Like it's pull over me was completely gone. Um, and that's just a way in which having death be a more natural part of our lives casts, wow. casts those lives in a more beautiful shadow, you know, kind of like the shadow of autumn, you know, how in autumn, everything is super beautiful. The sun is like the, the shadows are longer and more intense. Um, that's what it's like to practice memento mori. That's so beautiful. And I love the idea that, I, I mean, I guess death kind of feels like the ultimate bittersweet moment. Like the, and, and it just was so helpful to have articulated that there's another word for what you're experiencing. And so it, it sort of felt like it gives you permission to just be fully joyful about a life that was lived and fully sorrowful that that moment will never be again, you know? Yes. And I, I just felt like it was so liberating to have new words for it. It's not just darkness. Like there, the, the, the fullness of the moment really is a bittersweet feeling. And, and I love the idea that we can just lean all the way into that, like freely. And, and there's, you don't have to be happy about this moment and you don't have to like push away the joy. Like it, it is a mixed bag of, of fullness. Exactly. And it just felt relieving. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I also think there's, um, there's something very uplifting in the fact that Every human who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live after us, they will all experience the same thing. You know, they'll mm -hmm. all experience the, these joys of life and these, you know, like terrible sorrows of, of bereavement or having yeah. to having to leave it all behind. Like we're all completely united in yeah. that reality. Um, and I don't think we do enough with that. Like that in terms of a bridge between us, I, I, I feel like there, there are all these bridges that are there to, um, that we could be traveling down to unite us um, across political divides and economic divides and all the other divides that, that humans erect. 
Um, this yeah. is one of the most profound ones that we're kind of all in it together fundamentally that we could be using much more. Yeah. I, I love that you could, let's just stay there for a minute because one thing that I really took from the book was this idea that something, something good grows when you, when you really face pain head on, when you, when you're not avoiding the bitter part of bittersweet, that, that there's something good that will grow in that, in that very painful place. And, and so I love this, the tyranny of positivity section and just this idea that like, there's not, that's not all good. Like it's not, it's, there's not just positive consequences to refusing to look at the bitter side of any situation. And I think that connection that you're talking about is definitely, is definitely something like that polarization does kind of dissolve when, when you can really lean into empathy and experience what someone or imagine even what somebody else is experiencing. But can you talk about what else, like what, what else do we lose when we sweep bitterness under the rug? Like when, when we push away anything that doesn't feel like positivity, what else, what else are we losing? Well, excuse me, we're losing our mental health. I mean, like in that section, I I, I tell the story of my um, dear friend, Susan David. She's this amazing psychologist who who talks and, and speaker and writer who talks a lot about emotional resilience. And, and I told her story, which is that when she was 14, her father died of cancer. And, and Susan, she's a very like cheerful, upbeat person by nature. Um, and she knew, she knew that what everybody wanted from her was to be okay, um, even though she had just lost her father. So she's 14 years old and she goes back to school and um, acts like a regular 14-year-old kid. And people ask her, are you okay? And she said she was a master of being okay. Um, but she really wasn't okay. And she was going into the bathroom and, and um, throwing up her food after every meal. You know, she developed bulimia. and she said this would have gone on indefinitely until she had an English literature class and and the English teacher handed out blank notebooks to the kids in the class. And and the English teacher had also lost a parent at a young age. And, And this teacher looks at Susan directly in the eyes and says, I want you to write down exactly what you really feel. Tell the truth, tell the truth about how you feel. And it's just for you. And the teacher said, I'm going to read it, but this is your space to tell the truth. And Susan describes that moment as a revolution in a notebook, because she said it was the first time anybody had told her to really say like how much pain she was in. And, you know, and and far from that inviting her to like dive into pain and never come out again, it was exactly the opposite. Like that, that was the core that, that, that was where she first began to build the emotional resilience wow. that she has. Yeah. Wow. It feels ironic. Like I, I, I think people probably embrace this tyranny of positivity in the name of mental health. Like they're trying to, they're being so cheerful and positive that they feel so good. And, and so it, it's so, it's so useful to realize that like that, that is actually working against your mental health. Like it, it may feel backwards, but like feeling your feelings all the way is going to be the key to healing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think what's part of this is that feeling our feelings all the way also means being open to joy, you know, and to yeah. how insanely beautiful so many things yeah. are around us that we also really don't notice that much. Like we might say, oh yeah, it's a beautiful day today, but we're not really thinking about it. Um, but <laughs> if you really look around, like there's so much beauty 
all over the freaking place, like everywhere you look. <laughs> and and I, I think that's something we need to be noticing and interacting with in a much more proactive way. So yeah. something that's coming up for me, Susan, is I'm wondering, so with your first book, Quiet, you were describing, you know, roughly half the population. And I'm wondering, is this book, is this book sort of similar or parallel in the sense that is it meant for, you know, people who find themselves sort of naturally melancholic or who have suffered loss or, or, or is this book more dis- for, for, or describing everybody? Well, it's such a good question. Um, the book is definitely potentially describing everybody. I think that many people, even if they don't relate to what we're talking about right now, um, probably will one day after they've been through a variety of life experiences. Um, I would say the reality of the book is, yeah, there, there's like a there's a subset of the population who has felt this stuff right out of the gate, you know, from the time they were four years old, they were in touch with it. Um, you know, sort of bittersweet types. And I get letters from these people and <laughs> the letters are so similar to the ones I got from quiet, you know, uh, letters talking about being given permission to mm. feel what they've always felt. Um, or, you know, kind of what Aubrey talked about, about um, the book articulating something for them that they had always felt and never put into words. So there's definitely a, a portion of the population who's like that. Um, and then I think there's a lot of other people who, as you, as you said, Tim, like they've gotten to the part of life where they've experienced life's losses as well as, as well as its joys. And then they get oriented in this direction. So I, I love think people probably pick it up at different times. Yeah. I love how you 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 mentioned that artists in whatever form of art, artists who are living in these bittersweet moments of their lives, like that's when they're doing their very best work. And and you had so many interesting examples of this. And my favorite line of the book was about how we can use the pain that we can't get rid of to be our creative offering. That was so exciting to me because it felt like there was somewhere to put the energy and in a way that that feels um life-giving. It just felt like a, an immediate way to transmute pain. And so, but I want, I want you to talk about that though. Like how, how does creativity help us transmute? Because I, I feel like leaning into pain in a creative way would actually magnify it. Looking for art that really resonates with you in your darkest moments. I could see how people would be afraid that that's going to make them feel worse, that they're going to get lost in this, in, in despair. And that really didn't feel like the message. So can you talk about what you learned about creativity? Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. Um, But first to answer the question that you just asked about, like, if you, if you try to take pain and turn it into creativity, do you end up making the creativity like a another sort of well of pain from which you can't escape? (laughs) Um, And I guess what I would say to someone feeling that way is listen to Beethoven's Ode to Joy, um, which I mean, it's one of the most transcendent pieces of music ever written. Um, it was written during the years that Beethoven was losing his hearing, which for a musician was was like the ultimate loss. And, um, you know, it was like a really terrible time for him. Um, and, and look at what he did with that. And you listen to Ode to Joy and it, it, it is literally an ode to joy. You know, it, it, it yeah. It was it was written in honor of um of this poem 
at the time that he loved, and it, it was a poem celebrating love and uni- unity and enlightenment values. Um, so, so it's it's a it's music that's all about joy, and at the same time, you can't listen to it without hearing these great echoing waves of sorrow and longing. They're just part of the music, and they're what infuses it with greatness. So, the creative act that we might perform, you know, in in in, in as as an act of transformation of our pain. It will reflect our pain in some way, but it doesn't have to be only about that. It's mm-hmm. it's much more complicated than that. Because if you're in pain, it, it's because you've lost something in some way, but you haven't lost yeah. something unless you also loved it. So the best creativity is oh. expressing the loss and the love simultaneously. Oh. oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. I love that idea. You say that the place you suffer is the place, it, it reveals what you care about. Like it reveals the care everywhere. There's pain. And the more intense the pain, like the more intense the care and all of this pain is, is love in, in, in a new form. And it, it kind of gave direction, you know, something to do with the pain. You can, you can always lean into the care and lean into the love. And, and that's, that's going to be the, the way through pain. And that was one of those things that just felt like so viscerally true that I've never been able to articulate, but that I can, I can feel like there wouldn't be pain if there wasn't some, if there wasn't care. Yeah. 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 That they're flip sides of the same thing. And I, at the same time, like for anybody who's listening, maybe there's somebody who's listening right now and they're in the throes of grief or bereavement or someone's just betrayed them or, you know, like some of the real pain, the the deepest pains that humans have. And I don't want to minimize what you might be feeling at this moment or for a while to come. Um, and I'll tell you, like, even when I was writing the book, I, like I would get a bad headache and go running for, you know, the Tylenol and be like, you know, you're saying that there's value in pain and yet here you are <laughs> like rushing for your Tylenol. Yeah. So, I mean, so no one likes pain. Um, yeah. it, it's just that, yeah, that there, I think we really only have kind of two choices of what to do with it when it comes, you know, and one of them, choice number one is taking it out on ourselves or on the people around us, you know, whether it's through depression or aggression or whatever it is. And choice number two is ultimately finding a way to live with it and turn it in some direction of a beauty or use or whatever it can be. Yeah. And Susan, before we, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, I, there was a, there was a question I really wanted to ask because I think it it hits at the heart of what so many people feel, especially in our society. There's there's a portion of the book where you talk about um, something you call effortless perfection, which mm-hmm. is an image you found that young people are trying to sort of project at elite universities. But I think it and you say, and I think it's totally true that it's much broader than that too. It's something we probably all feel at times. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more time you spend on social media, the the more you probably feel the need to project this effortless perfection where. It, not only are you perfect, you don't even have to work that hard to to be perfect. Um, c- could you talk about, is there some sort of, I, I don't know, I would just love for you to speak directly to somebody that's feeling that, that on the outside, they, they're feeling the need to show strength and positivity and happiness, but on the uh, inside, there is an underlying uh, struggle or, or sadness or, or loss. Yeah, I mean, so effortless perfection I mean, as you said, it is, it's, I, I learned through researching this book and showing up on college campuses that um, 
that it's this term that a lot of college students use to describe this pressure that they feel to not only get good grades and look really good and have a big social life and on their way to a great career. So not only all of that, but they also have to appear that that's all happening without any effort at all. They just roll out of bed and these things happen for them. Um, And yeah, that, that is something that we, all of us, I think, feel on some level. Um, And the best antidote to it is to really talk to people because in fact, nobody is feeling it. Mm. Not one single person um, is feeling that, 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 that perfect facade that some people are actually really good at presenting. So remember that, that things are not what they seem. And the more you can actually sit down and really talk to people, the more you will know this to be true. I love I, and, you know, I, I would actually even say open up the discussion of, of the phenomenon of effortless perfection itself mm. and see what people tell you. Wow. Thank you so much. This is, I, I, I just love the book so much. I can't even tell you, but is there anything that we missed that you want to make sure we, we mention before, before we close? I don't think so. I've loved talking to you so, so much. Um, I mean, I guess I, one thing worth saying, if, if this would be of interest is in addition to the book, I also have this course that I developed. It's um, a bittersweet practices and reflections oh. course. And it's such a cool new way to do a course. Um, it basically works that I just send a text message to your phone or a WhatsApp, if you prefer that, every morning. And you get like a little audio message from me and it's just like one oh, or two wow. or three minutes. Um, so it's really quick. Wow. But it's a oh. way to engage with these different teachings. Oh, amazing. Oh my gosh. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much yes, um, thanks, for Susan. quiet and, and for this newest book. We're so excited for people to read it. And, Honestly. Yes. These are, yeah. these are gifts that you're putting out into the world and we can't, we can't thank you enough. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I honestly, I, I really love talking to you. I have done, I had to go on such a big publicity tour for this book. I'm so exhausted <laughs> by it, but I don't know. There's something oh. about the two of you. I, I really, really love oh, that's talking very kind. So thank, thank you. you. It goes both ways. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. And we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Susan Kane. For those particularly inspired by Susan's insights here, we'd encourage you to check out her 30-day Bittersweet Practices and Reflections course at courses.susankane.net. And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.